Cancer journey is unique for everyone. It is time to figure out our new normal, and there's no one-size-fits-all manual. Welcome to the Cancer Cliff Notes podcast with Jen Cochran, because surviving is just the beginning. Hi, I'm Jen Cochran. Welcome to episode 11 of the Cancer Cliff Notes. My guest this week is Suzanne Ryer. She's a veteran-turned-civilian who spent the bulk of her career in government service. She's an avid volunteer in her church and local elementary school. She's a crafter, quilter, and knitter. And she's also a 14-year triple-negative breast cancer survivor. Welcome, Sue. Thanks for having me. I'm so glad that you're here. So I met Sue actually very soon after she finished her treatment. We have worked together in a movement capacity for many years, and I'm so excited that you're sharing your story today. Thank you. It's been a long time coming. Yes, it has. So one of the things I love about your story is that your treatment was a bit unconventional in that you had some underlying health challenges that impacted your treatment process. I would love for you to share your story with the listeners. Okay. Well, in 1991, I lost twin sons and within three days I was diagnosed with postpartum cardiomyopathy, which basically just means damage to the muscle in your heart. And that turned into congestive heart failure. So I spent a year with tests and rehabilitation and medication recovering from that. Miraculously, there is no sign of damage anymore in my heart. That, that's a really cool thing. But when I had breast cancer in 2005, my doctors felt that they couldn't use radiation and some of the newer drugs because they could damage my heart and they just didn't know how it would react having been through congestive heart failure. So it, it made a very different path for my treatment and they had to use some of the older drugs and uh, protocols for me. If I remember correctly, your diagnosis came out of a routine screening mammogram. It did. I was 49, healthy, went in for a regular screening, got the phone call to come back in and have some additional pictures taken. Then after that, they wanted to do a biopsy. So I called my general practitioner and she recommended a breast surgeon that I went to for the biopsy. And it turned out to be positive, positive and and triple negative. Did you have surgery before chemo or after? I did, I had surgery before the chemo. I had surgery in May and then started my chemo about six weeks later. You had a single mastectomy. I did. 14 years ago, not a lot of people were getting double mastectomies just for prevention, but I was more than happy to get the one and get rid of it. (laughs) Well, and I'm not sure now, I know that now it's the law, but I'm not sure what the law was 14 years ago. I don't think that it was as advocated as I think that it is now. So I think that for the time, that was a great choice. Definitely. Yeah, but the times were very different. Absolutely. So it's an interesting process because we never really know what what choices we'll make until we're there. <laughs> that is very true. Now, I know you did chemo, and also, I think at that time, ports weren't super common. 
they, a lot of people I knew had ports. I don't know, I never questioned it, didn't really know anything about ports. So when I didn't get one, you know, there, it was just like, okay. Later on during my chemo, about halfway through, I think the nurses were wishing that I had had a port. My veins aren't all that easy to get a chemo set up in. We had some tricks when I, I would go in early and they would wrap my arm in a heating pad and I'd leave my arm over the side of the chair and then they would, you know, after a few minutes, they'd come over and, and put the IV in and we'd do it that way. When I went through my treatment, I did get a port. I had my chemo every three weeks, as I think yours was. Yes. But on the off weeks, they do your blood work, and it was about halfway through that did not work any longer. She got like three drops out of my arm, and my arm was like, no, thank you. Don't stick me anymore. I'm done. Yeah, at some point, your veins are just like, we're good. Stop poking us. My nurses were, were fabulous. Uh, the fact that they were able to work with the challenges that my veins presented all the way through the chemo, because I went uh, six sessions. They, they, got, they got what they needed every time <laughs> yes. without, without putting me in discomfort or any, any upset. Yes, and I know that chemo was particularly challenging for you. Can you talk a little bit about that? I can. I, I do not like taking drugs, prescriptions, Acetyl, for anything, Tylenol. Tylenol, anything. So when I would go in and they would put the IV in, and as soon as they started hooking medications up, tears would just run down my face, which really upset them. And it wasn't because they had hurt me, you know, they were so concerned about my welfare and, you know, that they might have hurt me. And it had nothing to do that with that. It was strictly emotional and, and what they were putting into my IV. So they started giving me a little bit of Ativan at the beginning of each session to, to help calm me down and make things a little bit easier on me. But yeah, it was going in there each time for, for the IV was was very emotional. It wasn't just the chemo, I do that, you know, if I have to go in for a hospital procedure, when they put the IV in, I do the same thing. So it's just, it's, it's an emotional thing that I have about what they're doing, what they're putting in my body. <laughs> yeah, I think that's a great insight though. It, it becomes much more powerful to be able to say, hey, just heads up, just so you know. This is how I'm going to react, and it's not you. It's totally me. And I think oftentimes we don't know. You know, we don't know what thing is going to make us react. For me, it was being every time I was told what I couldn't do, usually at a time that I could still do the thing, and people would say, oh, you won't be able to do that. You can't do that. That was the time for me where I was like, yes, I can. Stop telling me what I can do. It's not your body. When my body can't do it, I'll stop. But stop telling me what to do. I think that's one of the things we don't talk about because often those emotional things come up at times that we're just not aware. Like for me in the hospital after my surgery, the last time I had been in the hospital was for a car accident and I had a lot of seatbelt trauma and I had a knee injury. In that circumstance, I couldn't stand up. 
but my legs worked just fine after my bilateral, but I had that same physical discomfort. It was kind of like that achy, it wasn't even really pain, it was just like an achy, like sort of like I'd been hit by a truck. I was sitting on the edge of the bed trying to get up, like why can't I get up? With no understanding of where that was coming from, because our brain is a really powerful thing. It is, and sometimes it is, it, I mean, it, it can be as surprising to us as it is to the people around us. Exactly. Trying to figure out what's going on. It's such an interesting study in human nature and human behavior. So, I know for you, radiation would be a, you know, quote-unquote, kind of normal course of action, but that wasn't on the table for you. Right. You know, 14 years ago, the radiation was not what it is today. It wasn't as targeted. My tumor was in a place where they they just were afraid that, again, the radiation might damage my heart. So they decided that that was not an option for me, which really limited my oncologist in his toolbox. He wasn't able to use some of the newer drugs that might have might harm my heart and the same with the radiation he really as as he told me years later had one shot what has been just very grateful that that shot seems to have been what I needed in the grand scheme of things too having those options or not having those options has also prevented you from some of the other negative things that can happen it has, and, and things that, you know, back then I probably wouldn't have been thinking about because I was kind of in that, that mode of, okay, i got to do this and this and this. Let's get it done and over with. It was like, okay, this is what you say. Let's get it done. What would you say was the thing in your kind of the diagnostic processes that you went through looking back you wish you had known at the time? I think there there probably were a couple of things. I think at the time I went through, there was a lot of people telling me, you know, you need to rest. You need to take care of yourself. You're going to be exhausted. And yeah, that was true. I'm not right up, up front, but, you know, progressively more and more of the exhaustion. But nobody really talked about how important movement as far as daily exercise, you know, just gentle walking, that kind of thing, and the importance of diet. Also, uh, the importance of rehabilitative movement so that I could continue to move my arm and get the full motion back after the surgery. So there wasn't a whole lot of talk about that. I was kind of told... It's okay if you do some things, but realize that your friends may not, you know, they may think you can still do more than you can, so don't give in to peer pressure, you know, say no when you need to. So I was like immediately very cautious and and kind of went the other way, saying no when I probably didn't need to. Gotcha. So we're going to take a quick break, and when we come back, the time goes so fast. I know I say that every time. We're going to talk more about that movement piece and how that's impacted you in the time since. We'll be right back. Enjoying the Cancer Cliff Notes podcast? Come on over to the Facebook group where you can join the community and participate in the conversation during the week. I hope to see you there. Now back to the show. 
Welcome back. I'm here with Sue Ryer and we're talking about her experience with triple negative breast cancer. One of the things we were talking about before we went to break was how 14 years ago we didn't know as much as we do now about different types of chemo. It was, I think it was pretty globally believed that if you were on chemo, you lost weight. And the reality with breast cancer chemo treatment is that most people tend to gain weight with those treatments. And it was really interesting because when I had my diagnosis, my oncologist, who's also your oncologist, had said to me, I want you to be really careful that you don't gain any weight. And I remember you saying, what do you mean he told you not to gain any weight? Why didn't anyone tell me these things? Like, And I think it's just has changed now we're more aware because there's certainly there were certainly people in that infusion room with me that had really lost weight and they were encouraging them to eat and I know that it was somewhat similar when you were going through your treatment it was I can remember you know there was a prescription that I would ref- that I would fill the day before my chemo treatment and I would take it I think I took it that morning then I would go in in the afternoon for my infusion. It actually helped with nausea and to give me an appetite. And I didn't put on weight immediately, but I noticed like about halfway through, all of a sudden it seemed like 15 pounds was was there. And by the time I finished my chemo, I had put on about 35, almost 40 pounds. And it just, I mean, it wasn't that long of a time. It was like this weight just... I've always, you know, for, for many, many years, I've fought my weight, and but I, I had lost a little bit of weight before my surgery, so was feeling like I was in a pretty good place, and then all of a sudden to feel like this weight just kind of appeared back on my body again was really not a good emotional place for me. <laughs> no, it's really disconcerting. One of the side effects of a lot of these medications is depression. And I often say, is the side effect really depression? Or is depression a a side effect entirety of the situation? I had very similar thing happen with one of my medications, as you know, where it was like, I was putting on chunks of weight at a time, like within five days, I'd have more weight and I kept saying to my doctor I I can't I can't exercise enough I can't eat a small enough amount of food exercising like a fiend and eating like carrots and kale and berries and I'm gaining weight and this is not okay (laughs) and I had a GP say to me oh I bet you've never had extra weight and I was like I have not and what is your point like this is not the point the fact that I have extra weight on me and I haven't experienced that before is not the point. The point is, why is this happening? And I don't think anyone tells you. I mean, one of the side effects of tamoxifen is absolutely 110% weight gain. Everyone I know has gained 20 to 40 pounds on tamoxifen during their five years of tamoxifen. But I'm not sure weight gain is listed as a side effect. It's just a, this little fact that no one's talking about. I think that's an important thing is that 
there are a lot of things that you aren't necessarily going to hear in your doctor's office. And that's why having, having other survivors around you and to be able to talk about what's happened in their lives is so important because we've been through it. And with the myriad of different combinations of drugs and treatments and things going on in our lives, we can tell each other those stories so that people going through this now can be a little bit more prepared and and maybe try to do some things to help themselves along the way. Absolutely. It's been really interesting for me as well as I talk to more and more people. Little things will come up. Like my interview with Gemma a few weeks ago where we were talking about glasses slipping out of our hands that we don't have grip. She just said it as a throwaway thing like, oh, this is the craziest thing. Like glasses just slide out of my hands. And I was like, yes, that's because of our treatment. And it was this epiphany and no one thinks, oh, glasses are going to start sliding out of my hands. Like you just start to think I'm clumsy. I'm, we don't make those connections to these seemingly innocuous things that are actually like you drop enough glasses or break things or can't open a jar like that's impactful to our psyche it is and it seems like an insignificant thing to an outside person that this is maybe not happening to and yet if you hear from somebody oh yes this happens to me then it's like oh okay it's not just me this is a thing right and oh I am normal yeah I don't have to worry about this thing because it happens to other people doing going through the same thing that I'm going through right yeah then it's a lot less concerning yes it might be annoying but I think when you know it's happening to other people you can kind of make a joke out of it. I frequently joke about my chemo brain. It's not necessarily funny, but it's real. And I've gotten better at recognizing, oh, that's a chemo, like that's a chemo remnant, as opposed to like, I'm losing my mind. And that was another thing that 14 years ago, nobody really warned me about. It wasn't really talked about all that much. It was just through listening to other people that I was like, okay, so I'm not losing my mind. This is a thing that we go through. It's it's a real thing. I was still working while I was going through chemo. I was a, always able to remember things, and I worked in software testing, and I could remember screens and how the programs worked. You know, it just became part of my memory. And all of a sudden, it was like sometimes that memory wasn't there, and I had troubles remembering. Okay, what does this thing do, and where did this go? So to find out that. I wasn't having something abnormal go on, but this was a thing and I could get through it. I That was very, very much beneficial to my mindset. It's a relief, yeah. really. When I did my massage therapy training, I did a pathology class and I remember reading the section on Alzheimer's and I was like, wow, there's like six or seven, I think, stages of Alzheimer's. And I remember thinking at the time, this was before my diagnosis, wow, like everybody can be at stage four. How many times do you lose your keys or misplace your phone? Like these are, this is like stage four symptoms. So you start to set something down in a weird place, not be able to find it. And then you're like, oh, am I, am I losing my mind? And <laughs> if, if we know these are things, then we can be like, oh, 
okay, I just need to be a little bit more mindful or set up a tool. But if we don't know they're a thing, it's disconcerting. It is. It is. I think at some point after your surgery, you had a visit from someone from the American Cancer Society. I did. I had already started chemo treatments, so it was it was a while after. I'm not sure who suggested she come by, but she called and then stopped by and brought me some pamphlets with some exercises for making sure I didn't lose mobility in my arm. And she brought me a journal so that I could journal what I was going through. And she just sat and she talked to me for quite a while. And it was really beneficial. But that was the first point that anybody had mentioned that I needed to be doing some things with my arms so that I didn't lose mobility. I was kind of shocked by that, and but she worked with me and showed me how she had started doing the exercises and got me going. And so it was, it was a very beneficial visit. And we did talk to each other a couple of times after that um, as I was going through my treatments. I feel like that's still a gap that we have in the medical world when it comes to cancer patients, not getting that information about movement. And we've all been taught that pain or discomfort is a, we don't want to have, we don't want to feel those things. And what we don't realize is that often when we have a surgery that's impactful to areas and no one, the one thing that I was really grateful for prior to my surgery I knew a lot of information. I knew what my surgery was going to look like. The one thing that I was so grateful for was being told how much the lymph node scar, how much discomfort there was going to be there because I would have been really nervous because it was much worse than my other incisions, which seemed like such a much larger piece of the surgery, right? And then this little one inch incision on in my armpit was like the most discomfort and then because I knew that I could move my arm and because my surgeon had said when I see you in seven days I want your arm over your head with you standing next to the wall like with your arm flat on the wall I knew okay I need to start moving right away and just gradually increase my range of motion every day interesting thing because my husband would come home once he went back to work he would come home and be like okay show me your wall box like show me your exercises how is that going which was just kind of funny but because I move for a living and because I'm a massage therapist and those I needed to regain my mobility and the use of my arms pretty rapidly it was always a topic of conversation but I meet people every day my mom, for instance, she had a lumpectomy and was released for exercise right away. And she was released because I don't think the doctor knew she had an active yoga practice. And then she had a seroma and had discomfort and was having all these issues. And I was like, two more weeks, no moving. Like it was too soon. You just came back too soon. And the thought was, but I'm released for exercise. I said, yes, but she didn't realize how like active your practice is. She looked at a person of a certain age and made an assumption. 
And that's really challenging because often we just don't get that information. You're right, we don't. And yes, you know, we need to take enough time to, to heal, but still do gentle things um, yeah. so that you don't lose that mobility and be able, you know, I, I agree that we definitely need much more support in what we need to be doing and at what point and how much, you know, how much we can do. And I agree, and partially because I've been overweight and I'm a woman of that certain age. And when people look at, look at us, they don't think that we're doing things like an act of yoga or um, the fact that I do Pilates twice a week. They just kind of, I, I guess, you know, once you reach a certain age, you're supposed to kind of become a couch potato. You know, they need to take into account that just because you have a certain body shape or you're in a certain age doesn't mean that you're more or less active than somebody in a different age group. Absolutely. There's a component, too, of knowing your audience. I say that because I feel like we spend this finite amount of time with our practitioners and they may, in some cases, get to know us very well over a period of years, but often in that beginning time, they don't really know us very well. They know our illness, they know our immediate challenges, depending on what questions we ask or what areas we push and pull in, they'll get to know us better that way, but they don't necessarily know our deepest nature. And I say that because you had commented earlier in terms of movement, like a lot of the feedback you were getting was don't overdo, don't do too much, where I might push the envelope on that sometimes can go the other way so talk a little bit about that and how that can still kind of jump in and impact you that that definitely is something that I think is is in my nature when I was going through the breast cancer and they said you know don't overdo you know take it easy yeah you can you can go for a walk and but you know, be careful when you're doing things. And if you start to feel tired, you know, don't be afraid to, to rest. And I took that to a step further. I'm not one who is an avid exerciser. It's not one of my favorite things to do. And so when I get those warnings, I take it a step further and like, okay, I'm, I'm resting. You know, I would go out and do my daily things, go to work, walk into the office from the parking lot, grocery shopping, but go out and, and walk two or three miles, not going to happen. And at the time, I had been doing a little bit of yoga, but I hadn't started the Pilates yet. I didn't do that until I met you. So there wasn't really a whole lot of planned exercise that I got. And I'm sure that led to me being very weak at the end of my treatments. I can remember I started at a, at a gym and I couldn't do five minutes on the treadmill without being winded. Well, when for however many months I was in treatment, when you're not doing a whole lot of moving and cardio or any other kind of exercise, your body gets weak really, really fast. So it did have an impact and I was in pretty decent shape before my surgery. 
So then when I went back to the gym and it was like, oh, what have I, what have I done? You know, what have I done? What has this whole process done to me? What's going on here? Am I ever going to get this strength back? So it was really, it, w- it was really a rough time and it took me a long time to, to get that strength back. I'm actually stronger now than I, than I was before. I still, if there's something that hurts, I've recently been diagnosed with rheumatoid arthritis and when that hurts, my first instinct is to curl up in the chair and stay warm and comfortable. Not go outside where I'm not going to feel comfortable moving and things are stiff and sore. So I still have to fight through that now. It's something that I'm going to have to have to continue working on because that's kind of my comfort zone is to curl back up in that chair. Yes. I do love that you have definitely, through the exploration with the rheumatoid arthritis, started to find this new way. It's kind of like the new normal. We we have to reassess where we are after treatment, and we are in a lot of ways starting over. That's not necessarily bad. It's just a new place, and it's a different place, and it's challenging to be in that place. One of the things I love about your current journey is that you really are starting to get more curious. You'll come in and say, ha, I thought this thing was rheumatoid arthritis, but not everything is rheumatoid arthritis, (laughs) which is great, right? It's that great exploration. And that's a hard thing. Our habits are invisible. We We don't realize that we're curling up in the chair. Right. We don't realize that that's our habit. So it's really cool when we start to take a different way. I believe you had done the Susan G. Komen 5K. They had a Susan G. Komen run, I think, 10 days after my surgery. My breast surgeon at the time, they would get a busload of survivors and go down and, and walk. That year, I was too close to surgery, so I couldn't go. But the next year, I did go. And as I said... I had surgery in May of 2005, and in December was when I first went back to the gym. That was when I found out how weak I was, and I didn't have my full strength back that May when we did the walk. That was probably the hardest walk. I wasn't sure I was going to make it to the end, but I did. But I was really sore, and it took me quite a few days to to recuperate from, from that. We were talking earlier about our brain and how our brain makes these subconscious connections. That experience definitely had a lasting effect on how you felt about cardio exercise and cardio activity. It, it did. Because it was so hard for me, I started thinking that I couldn't, I couldn't do that. And when I would think about walking long distances again, the first thing that came to my mind was pain and discomfort. <laughs> yes, excruciating pain, not yeah. just pain, yeah. but really significant, like put you in bed for several days kind of pain. Yeah, and particularly feet and legs, you know, when, when those muscles don't work. And then you walk three and a three point something miles. It can cause quite quite a bit of pain. So yeah, I I put up with that for a few days, and I I as you know, we've walked a couple of five k's since then, and that's that's the first place where I go is, this is going to be miserable. I'm going to hate it. I'm going to hurt afterwards. <laughs> the 
first 5K that you and I did together was a New Year's Eve 5K, and it was after three months of a walking program where you had walked many 5K distances, many, many times over the course of that 12 weeks, you had walked three and a half miles, more than a 5K distance. So we had had that conversation, hey, I think you should do this 5K because you're doing it. You're doing it, like you're doing it without pain, without discomfort, like you're doing it. I would love for you to share that particular experience. Well, I do remember it was extremely cold. I oh, think it was so cold. It was in the 20s that day. So it was very cold and I have a mild case of asthma. So the first we started walking and immediately the cold hit my lungs and I was like, "Oh, I can't do this. I can't breathe." Jen talked me down. <laughs> you were having a problem with your hat. I was having Something a problem. Something wasn't working with the hat. The hat was twisting and coming off and, and not comfortable. And then I was having trouble breathing. And I was like, I can't do this. I'm just going to turn around and go back. And Jen was like, now, you don't need to do that. Let's get rid of the hat, put on the headband. So we, we made a few adjustments. And again, it wasn't an easy walk for me in that cold. But we made it. I wasn't the last one. <laughs> No, not by a long shot. So I remember about the two-mile mark, you had stopped being grouchy. <laughs> I remember you looked at me and said, what if I can't finish? I said, well, what, what's going to happen if you can't finish? And you were like, well, what, what if I can't finish? I was like, well, you have to get back to the car. <laughs> it's parked at the finish line. I think there's only a mile left. You're going to finish. <laughs> I have a great photo of you at the finish line, very happy, because you did finish. But you definitely went back to that place. You were at that Susan G. Komen run in that moment. I was, and it was years later. Many years later, and your physical ability then was so much better. Absolutely. So much better. That's one of those emotional things that really has kind of shocked me how that one experience, the way I took that and, and have kept that, you know, that has kept me from doing things that I really could have done over the years. It, it's really shocking to me how, how much that impacted me. Yeah, it's, it's really interesting too because I see those moments come up. I love when you can recognize them when we get to a point where we can recognize the thing that is holding us back and we all have those things our brains a slippery slippery beast that it is it can hold us back in ways we're not even conscious of from things that happened many many years before and things that to compensate like when i'm when i'm hurting i may depend on my arms more rather than my legs and that becomes a habit and i don't even think about it all of a sudden, I realize, you know, whether it's you pointing out, you didn't used to get up from the chair that way. Is there something going on? And I'm like, oh, no, that's just a habit from before when it was hurting and I'm still doing it. It's like, okay, this is different. Why am I doing this? 
and working through and not letting those those habits hold me back. I think that's a beautiful golden nugget for people to walk away with, that curiosity of why am I doing this this way or why is that happening that way? That's definitely, the curiosity is, it's taken me a long time to develop that, but it definitely, you know, if something happens, I've learned not just to say, okay, it's happened, I'm going to, you know, I can't do that anymore. It's like, okay, this didn't feel right. Is it, is it something that I, you know, I, I'm having a, an arthritis flare? Or did I twist wrong when I turned over in bed last night? So I, that curiosity and trying to work through things is definitely something that has taken me a long road to get to. It's being very beneficial in moving past some of the things. That's awesome. Well, thank you so much for chatting with me today and for sharing your story. The time goes so fast. And thanks for having me. Working with Sue has been one of the greatest pleasures of my career as a movement specialist. And she was a great support for me when I was navigating my own diagnosis. Thank you, Sue, for stepping out of your comfort zone for me once again today and for trusting me and sharing your journey. There are so many options to get moving, and it seems every program out there trumpets that their way is the best. For this week's Personal Consciousness Minute, I want to challenge this idea. An option is only the best if it works for you and is sustainable. This is worth repeating. An option is only the best if you like it and it's convenient. Period. Full stop. End of sentence. Otherwise, you'll not be motivated to continue to show up and you won't be successful. So my challenge for you this week is to look at where you're trying to force someone else's solution. Could you use support to brainstorm other options that might be a better fit for you in your life? Come on over to the Cancer Cliff Notes Facebook group to pose a question to others on a similar journey or Go to fitnessdesignsolutions.com slash services to access my calendar to book a complimentary 30-minute wellness checkup. Helping people find the solutions that work best for them is one of my superpowers. Have a great week, and thanks for listening.